it can be very easy sometimes to start thinking we are the worst in the world. <laughs> the worst things happen here. Our government are absolutely the worst. Our government, God, just go traveling because if you know the vast majority of the other parts of the world are much worse. Looking at Ireland from almost any other country in the world, we're actually lucky. You know, I used to do a lot of traveling, especially to places where it's incredibly difficult to be LGBT, for example. And if you spend enough time in places like, you know, South Africa, uh, Mozambique, um, even Korea and Eastern European countries, Russia, Poland, uh, you know, places very close to home. Oh my God, you know, uh, you almost feel embarrassed to start complaining about you know, some of our problems because the things that they're dealing with are so much more extreme. For more where that came from and to hear the complete extended cut of this interview in full with no ads every week and to get access to the full back catalogue of every single episode that we have ever released for just the price of a pint every month, go to patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad. That's the small talk. Now let's go down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Our chosen charity partner at the Irish Men Abroad Podcast Network is Jigsaw.ie, the youth mental health charity doing incredible work for young people back home in Ireland throughout the pandemic and beyond. Why not head over there this week? Take a little look at the services they have at offer, the expertise they have is unparalleled and the work they've done to save lives throughout this pandemic is truly something. That's Jigsaw.ie, the chosen charity partner of an Irish man abroad. Well, Rory O'Neill, a.k.a. Panty Bliss, sat down with me this week to talk about Ireland six years on from that momentous day when we said yes. Rory made headlines recently when... Not for the first time, he articulated an uncomfortable truth about how disposable many people in hospitality and entertainment felt when hard decisions were being made around lockdowns and restrictions. And I wanted to talk about that sense because I don't think that it's just artists and venue owners who felt it. I think that when there's a lot of talk about how much money people are putting away during a time like this, if you're not doing that, you can feel further isolation that that's not your reality. There is, of course, so much more to this chat and you can hear the full conversation, as always, by becoming a member for the price of a coffee and a bun on patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad members or how I and many other creators have survived this pandemic. So if you enjoy what I do... If you think it's worth something, 
why not join up for this tiny amount each month and I'll give you even more in return. Four weekly episodes, including Sonia O'Sullivan, Marion McKeown and Tom Dunn, plus unlimited access to the hundreds of episodes we have in our archive that you can't get anywhere else, including the original Patty Bliss episode from six years back. For now, sit back and enjoy this taste of my conversation with Rory O'Neill. Rory O'Neill, thank you so much for coming back onto Irish Man Abroad on this anniversary. It, it is strange to think that it's that long ago. Uh, is your experience of that period of time as accelerated as mine? Or is it just the case that a lot of things took place, but it feels like you've lived another life in that six years? <laughs> it does seem amazing to me that it was six years ago. Um, but, you know, I have that feeling about everything the older I get, you know. Um, but I think because... It was a very intense period of time. You know, a lot of things were happening in that period. The sort of campaign around marriage equality was so intense on various levels. So there's just a lot of feelings attached to it. And, you know, the period since, you know, as you're living kind of your normal day to day life with, you know, various periods of intense activity along the way, that seems to have concertinaed. Yes, um, mm. it, it does seem remarkable that it's six years ago. I think I've heard you say this a couple of times that your favorite quote is what other people think of you is none of your business. <laughs> yes. <laughs> does, does that quote like I've thought about it quite a bit because I'm like, but a lot of people think it is your business. <laughs> and well, uh, what I like about it, I always credit it to RuPaul because he's the first person I heard saying it, which seems like such a cliche for me to, you know, name you know, the world's <laughs> most famous drag queen. But I don't know if he originated that. Um, I, I should probably Google that, but, you know. Um, <laughs> but what I love about that, it sort of absolves you of responsibility in a way. I think it's, it's especially keen, I think, if you have any kind of public profile, say online, or for example, because, you know, when when people come at you, no matter how secure you are in yourself and um, sure you of who you are and all that, it's difficult. It's sort of a learning process to ignore that stuff and almost impossible to entirely ignore it because we're all human. But for me to say to yourself, what other people think of me is none of my business. It's a, in a way... Um, it relieves me of the pressure to have to care about it or something. It's sort of saying to me, it's your own responsibility not to care about it. So just don't care about it. Um, yeah, yeah. It puts the ball it, in your also, court. Yes. And there's something, I don't know, empowering um, about that. And it also, the, because it's a sort of a no-nonsense thing to say to yourself. And so it's sort of a buck up. You know, you you can decide whether or not this bothers you or whether or not you care about this crazy person on the internet who you've never seen you don't know anything about um they know nothing about you they've never met you um you know you have the power to decide whether or not that bothers you and so i've always found that just really helpful advice it, you know generally but especially of course online and all that it's very helpful yeah well i do need to acknowledge this that and give you the credit uh, or some of the credit for what took place in my family last weekend which was 
bizarre situation where, you know, I get the HSC is attempting to roll out this vaccine as best they can. Mm. No system is perfect. But my mother-in-law yeah. found herself in a situation of being a woman in her 60s who the system had just allowed creep through the cracks. And she was seeing mm. multiple neighbours in their 40s being vaccinated ahead of her. And despite all of her calls yeah. and all of her efforts, nothing was happening. We were getting a lot of this is being escalated, which just meant please hold. <laughs> and uh, yeah. it went on and on and on. And I have to give Tina credit as well, because she fought for this for weeks. But you weighed in and gave it a retweet. And suddenly the HSC were in touch <laughs> to go. <laughs> oh, we're sorting this. Don't don't you worry. We're sorting this That's out. That's because I'm so full of diseases <laughs> that they have me on high alert. <laughs> well, uh, the reason uh, reason why I firstly bring it up is to to say thank you, but also within that interaction, y- you saw, you know, one such person come at me and say, taking shots at that person who got the vaccine in their forties is the is the wrong thing to do because you don't know their situation. And I said to my wife afterwards about this guy who <laughs> managed to find a negative in what was yeah. ultimately a very kind of very simple act of can we get this elderly lady her vaccine, please? Somehow managed to spin this in such a way that I was a bad person for judging others. And what I said to my wife at the time was this is a big, big, big problem in that this guy, the white male entitlement of this is that this guy assumed he had all the information when, in fact, yeah. he had none. <laughs> he had, yes. that, there's, that there was never a jump on his part to go, well, maybe I don't know all of the details. No, I felt that. Yeah. Yeah. So I felt that that was changing in Ireland because I felt like that marriage referendum kind of lifted the scales off people's eyes as to, oh, I was unaware of all of this stuff and I was willfully unaware of it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I saw that and I responded to the guy um, because it just annoyed me. And depending on my mood, sometimes I feel a bit feisty and I want to respond to these people and sometimes I don't. But I'll tell you here too. see what, my thing is, um, no, I think in a way you're giving too much weight to it because what that also is, is you put out a tweet saying, you know, we're feeling very anxious, um, you know, because my elderly mother still hasn't gotten the vaccine. Can anybody help how to sort of fix this? And you said, um, and, you know, and she's seeing your much younger neighbors getting vaccinated. And this guy comes at you. Mm-hmm. accusing you of, you know, going for the younger neighbor and you don't know what that younger neighbor's background is. But this is also just in a, the part of the the Internet. That guy, if you met him, does now he may be a horrible, vile troll, but the chances are he's a totally regular, nice guy. And the problem is he saw this thing that he saw, he, you know, felt was, um you know, a bad thing in, in your tweet. And he focused in on that and answered that to you directly as a person. Hmm. But if he had been sitting beside you in the pub and you had said the same thing out loud, he never would have dreamt of responding that way. True enough. He doesn't understand what it looks like when you just read his response and his response is coming at you while you're just worried about your mother. Hmm. 
he doesn't see that because he's on the internet. He also doesn't really grasp the fact, and this is so often the case with all of these internet interactions, he doesn't really, you know, it, deep inside grasp the fact that you're a real, actual, live person with a real, actual mother. Mm. You're just a tweet. Mm. And if he fully grasped your, you know, personhood, like you would if he was sitting beside you in the pub, he would never have responded in that way. Mm, and you're, you're even if even if you thought it, yeah. but he would never have because he would have seen your humanity My and he doesn't on Twitter. The whites of the eyes. And yeah. sometimes we all fall for that. I sometimes have to remind myself, you know, when I'm responding to somebody, oh, you know, really remind myself there's an actual person and they just tossed out the first thing that came into their head on Twitter. And they're actually maybe not a monster. Mm. <laughs> Some of them are monsters. <laughs> I'll give you that. Um, but you know what I mean? I think that guy, if he was on this side, he would be embarrassed about how he responded to a simple, you know, a worried you know, son about his mother-in-law. Mm. You know, you know, he'd be embarrassed if he saw his own tweet from the, from the other side. Yeah. But, but on his a, side, he did. He, yeah, he, he just it's just a, it's like the things that you shout at your windscreen when you're driving your car. If there was no windscreen there, you wouldn't shout those things. Absolutely isn't. Like I always, you know, try to say to myself, would I tweet this to this person if we were, you know, sitting beside each other in the pub and this discussion came up? It's, um, you know, common, you know, problem and fault. And it's not just the fault of the, you know, the assholes and the dickheads and the trolls out there. I think we all do it sometimes. Well, let me ask you this, Rory, because as someone who's had 50% of his work taken away, as a result of this pandemic, I really God, hang on now, way more than fifty percent. <laughs> well, for like I'm speaking, uh, oh, I'm speaking for myself. <laughs> I'm speaking for myself here, right? Oh, so, sorry, I thought you were talking yeah. about me. <laughs> so, so I was desperately lucky, right? So I, I recount myself as super, super, super lucky that I had fifty percent of my eggs in this podcast basket, and that mm. I could focus on that during this. And, you know, I've always tried to operate from that position of gratitude because I know from all of my creative friends what you've been through. But you came out and spoke about it and I felt like it was the first time anyone had said it. It was yet another moment where you were articulating an unspoken truth that other creative people were reluctant to say because it sounded like it sounded like something, again, ungrateful, unpalatable for people to hear in the face of all of this death. Did you get that from other creatives when you came out and spoke about what you'd been through this year? I absolutely did. Lots of it. And in fact, when I mean, obviously, you're talking about that clip that went viral from the whatever that the television show, I can't mm. um, whatever it's called. Oh, Six o'clock show, I think it is. Six o'clock show. Yeah. Yes. Um. You know, when I answered the question, you know, and spoke about that on that show, similarly, actually, to um, the, the Abbey speech that everyone knows me for, um, I, I, I honestly didn't say, think I was saying anything of, you know, that people didn't already know in a way. So I was just being honest. And I, you know, I, I said what I had to say, on, you know, on that show and went off home thinking, you know, nothing of it at all. So I was you know, very surprised when it got such a big reaction and everything. But 
tons of the messages that I got directly were exactly that from other people in, you know, hospitality industries or in you know, live entertainment industries, sort of, you know, thanking me for articulating what, what they felt. And it was because of that then that I then spoke about it a few more times. You know, I got a lot of requests after that. And then you know, I said no to most of them. But I did a few others simply because I realized that accidentally, you know, I had said something that other people felt needed to be said too. Um, because I was just talking, you know, from my own personal experience when I was, you know, on that show or whatever. But I did feel that the reason I said it when I was asked about it was I had felt that there was a sort of a brushing us under the carpet vibe where, you know, the, uh, long ago now, uh, you know, a government decision was made to close all hospitality and live entertainment and that. And then there was a sort of feeling I felt, that, OK, well, that's that problem solved. Let's move on to the next thing. But from you know my perspective, and I think other people in the same boat as me, it doesn't feel solved at all. You know, you, you're solving it was is a huge problem for for us, and I felt like the contribution that was asked of us was being forgotten in all the other discussions, because of course, and and what had sparked me off was reading this statistic that seventy percent of the population has saved money during the pandemic, and that had really made me feel like you know me and you know most of my social circle were just hovering on this other planet, you know, off to the side from everybody else. Because the idea that anybody in hospitality or, you know, live entertainment, the idea that any of us would have saved money in the last 15 months is just so nuts. <laughs> you know, everybody I know is, you know, struggling, you know, mm -hmm. to keep up with their various, you know, commitments and, you know, mortgages and rent and um, because we've lost all of our income. Whereas, most for most people, they've of course had to make all you know the sacrifices that everybody's had to about meeting family and friends and all of that stuff. But what they haven't been had to do is have their livelihoods decimated. From mm. for a huge number of people, from the sort of economic or work side of things, all they lost was their commute. Yeah, and that's it. You know. You know, my own fella is a good example. He, you know, has an office job. And so he hasn't been to the office in 15 months or whatever. He actually doesn't care at all. He never really liked the He always hated the commuting and everything. <laughs> yeah. But other than that, you know, he, he chugs along. Now, of course, he's gone out of his mind with the boredom of just getting up and, you know, setting, you know, sitting up and, you know, setting up in his little corner office and, you know, staring at the computer all day but he's got the exact same salary and all of that and then I'm sitting in the corner you know back and forth with the bank about my mortgage payment and you know worrying about the bar and you know all of those things um so I had sort of felt like people in our industries had been asked to make all the same sacrifices as everybody else and then this other huge sacrifice on top of that that you know most of the population hadn't and i just felt that that had just all sort of been forgotten yeah and so and so people i that i heard on the radio you know discussing the issues and arguing things were all discussing and arguing from this point of view that you know 
financially, you know, they were fine hmm. and that they were still working. I mean, even the people on the TV show, I was sort of had to say to them, like, you are coming into work every day. So I just I was fed up that our you know, the, the, this extra huge contribution that we had had to make had seemingly just been forgotten about. And people didn't really understand it. Like I was getting annoyed with my friends when they would tell me about something expensive they'd bought. Like a friend of mine got a new fireplace. And I was like, you got a new fucking fireplace? (laughs) (laughs) Look, I I don't think there's a person listening to this that won't identify with some of what you're talking about. And it's this uh, sense, like you say, spinning on this other planet. uh, Yeah. that savings through the pandemic was was triggering for loads of people who who were <laughs> literally going, well, what can I cut? What can I do without? And how can I hope to literally still be standing at the end of this? Yeah. Like but, I'm always there now at the, at the checkout at Tesco or Dunn stores, you know, rifling through all rifling through all the vouchers, you know, and I'm thinking like I really have turned into my mother at this age now <laughs> yeah. because I was always so I was always too disorganized to be up on my vouchers. And now I'm looking for every <laughs> bloody voucher and holding up the queue. <laughs> but there was a word in it, Rory, that really stuck with me. And that was the word disposable, because I'd felt that a bunch of times pre pandemic especially around Ireland's pride in its arts and entertainment, mm-hmm. that they're so proud to boast of it when it suits them. And that Ye- these things don't survive on their own. They are not a dog that you can leave out in the garden that'll, or a cat, better example is a cat, that will mm-hmm. fend for itself and, you know, be there for to look cute on Christmas Day. Yeah. But that is the attitude I feel that sometimes taken. I mean, I 100% agree with that. Irish people and the Irish government and board Falcha and all of these things are constantly you know, using, you know, Ireland's artists and artistic output, you know, as a selling point and as a draw. And they claim to love all their artists and they name the bridges after the writers and so on and so forth. But there is, you know, very little support for for artists, you know, and it comes down. And especially now, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, as you know, we're sort of going through this housing crisis and everything, you know, not only is there little support for artists and all of that simply because the government doesn't see the the direct initial return from things and now everything is seen in those terms but the whole the rest of society is part of it and so you know artists are find it virtually impossible to get a mortgage in this country a bank manager will laugh you out the door and it doesn't even matter really how much money you're making unless you have you know, a salaried income, the bank manager will laugh at you. And yet at the same time, you know, the country professes to love the arts and its artists, when in fact it does nothing to prove that. A very little to prove it's, that. It's a tough one. And I like I can fully vouch for the bank managers. I can I, like, I think I've had that interaction in a Bank of Ireland where <laughs> filling out a form, the guy said, are you sure you want to put down comedian? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Try drag queen. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I eventually did, you know, when I was in my 40s, managed to buy my um, small one bedroom apartment 
the closet of which I'm speaking to you from. <laughs> but um, only after I was able to, you know, you know, open the bar. And, and a good part of the reason I opened the bar was in order to stabilize my situation. Mm-hmm. And that included things like being able to get a mortgage. You know, and I could have made, you know, there are periods in life where I might have made more money from performing and writing and so on than I have from ever from the bar. But the bank manager doesn't give a damn. But, you know, a bank manager understands what a business is. He doesn't understand what a drag queen is. Yeah. Or, or you know, the the potential value of ideas. I mean, mm-hmm. that's really what they invest in if they go, yes, we can see from your body of work that there's more ideas still to come from you that you will earn from. That's just a language yeah. that's not going to get spoken in there when they're managing risk. But no, well, it drive me mad <laughs> that I would say, you know, I could prove and show them that I had never missed a rent payment in 30 years. But that didn't count as any evidence of my ability to make a living, you know, because yeah. I was an artist. Now, uh, nobody ever really talks to you about being a bar owner. Like, I'm sure I get that there's there's a lot of things to talk to you about. <laughs> you, you never get asked in interviews about what it's like to run that that business and the challenges you've faced over the years in doing it. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's partly because, you know, Panty's name, you know, existed before and outside of the bar or whatever. And but also I think people think it's generally less interesting. And also Irish people, they imagine that they know what running a bar is. Mm. Um, So I think they just feel that's very familiar and they can imagine what it is, you know, so um, they don't they don't want to go into it. But like to me, it's. It is interesting. It's obviously there's there's other things that are more pressing at times. But Mm. from having bars in the family at different points in the extended family, I know that it's it's a massively stressful experience. (laughs) (laughs) Is is that the number one uh, defining emotion of running a place like yours? At, At times, it certainly has been. I think part of the other reason that people don't ask so much about that is because you know panty's job and in some way all you know bar people's jobs but with panty i've always felt it very keenly about her whole existence panty's job is to always look like you know she's in control and having fun because a, a drag queen's main sort of you know lane mm. is creating fun i mean that's what drag queens you know i spent however 20 something years running around nightclubs and bars i mean that's what most drag queens you know earn their living from and uh, and your job is to be the life and soul of the party and your job is to get everybody else in in a good mood and your job is to be the fun colorful bright interesting one in the room mm-hmm. and no one wants or cares <laughs> you know if you've had a bad day and don't feel like it you know like all performers really hmm. um but so you know part of Hanty's job in general is not to show 
the background, the stress, you know, the stress yeah. and the feet underneath. They want to imagine that you just strolled out of your dressing room looking that gorgeous and they don't want to imagine you gluing stuff together, you know, and gluing your hair to your head and, you know, the horrible, uncomfortable corsetry that's giving you a blister. You know, that is not part of the deal. Mm. And I think they feel the same about you know, it's sort of the same about running a bar and not just for, you know, panty, but for any, you know, you know, publican or whatever. Your job is to be friendly and make it all look like it's going smoothly and easily and to be convivial and, you know, chat and listen to the regulars, you know, troubles and all of that, not to pour your own out. So there you have it, a little sample of that discussion. There's another 30 minutes of it for you to enjoy. Thanks to our members over on patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad. Pop over there, as I said, the price of a cup of tea and a biscuit. You can join up, get to hear the full conversation, our full back catalogue of episodes that you can't find anywhere else. And of course, my original interview with Rory O'Neill about how Panty Bliss came to be. That's in the archive and the only way to hear that is by joining up. As I say, this episode is made because of those patrons who get unlimited access and, you know, kind of special inner circle for this show. They've been helping me and people like me stay on the road, stay creating through this weird, weird period. It looks like we're coming out the other side. And uh, as a result of that support, we have four episodes of An Irishman Abroad each week. Tom Dunn on the selection box of providing unbelievable recommendations for music. Uh, Kevin Gildee will be on next week with his TV and film recommendations. Marion McKeown with The Irishman in America on a Friday. And of course, Sonia O'Sullivan with our Running and Wellness podcast on a Tuesday. So much more for you to enjoy there. Brian Connolly's on production. Tina and Mikey make it all happen and John Marr does the extra research. I will talk to you next Tuesday for more Sonia Sullivan and the Irishman running abroad.